Fredology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of a veteran fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my life and career on online fraud prevention for over 15 years, working with hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent payment fraud and abuse. We've made it to the 10th episode of Fraudology, guys. I'm pretty excited about that. So I'm going to be honest, I intended to have the 10th episode be last week um, and certainly never intended to only have one episode within three weeks. Uh, But life has been busy and that is great for someone that's self-employed. But I think those of you who are in fraud prevention can totally relate to like this weird sense of like, yes, I'm happy there's job security but I'm not super happy about why. Um, I think we've all seen fraud just multiply like bunnies the last couple of months or last eight months to be exact since COVID has hit our world. Uh, There's just so many side effects of that. And a lot of times when there's economic impact to an economy um, or to, you know, large groups of people that a lot of times scams just are more rampant, just like, um, how Shannon Slaughter in the last week's ep- or the last episode uh, talked about how a lot of people who fall for scams are the ones who really can't afford it. I mean, can anyone afford to fall for a scam? No, but these are, you know, a lot of times they're on fixed income or they're, you know, already um, financially insecure. I think that's the term. Uh, so it makes it a challenge. And then also there's just so much more fraud on the e-commerce side as well in, in a lot of different ways. And I'll get into that in a little bit. But uh, it's this weird thing. And I'm trying to think of what other industries would probably think about that. I mean, probably like ER doctors, I'm sure, probably think something similar. Like they're happy to be, I mean, I don't know if they're happy to be busy, but um, they, you know, don't want to be busy, but they also do want to be busy or they don't want there to be a need for more ER doctors, but they still want to. I don't know. Maybe I'm not really going very well with this analogy. I I am recording this on the end at the end of the day after I don't know six or seven hours of calls, so bear with me, please. (laughs) My brain might just be a teensy bit fried, (laughs) but uh, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, I feel conflicted about that. But from a self-employed person who genuinely wasn't sure how bills were going to get paid a few months ago, and that you know had to rely on their savings, I am very grateful that things are busy. Um, I kind of thought about talking a little bit about like a day in the life of me, but every day is different. And that's something that I absolutely love, but sometimes it is crazy making, uh, because I am so multi-passionate within the fraud industry. I have a huge passion for, you know, educating the industry and, and that I just do because I 
love doing it. And I feel like I am a pretty significant hub of a wheel and I get a lot of information and it really doesn't have as much value if I'm not sharing it out with people. So I do that through my podcast, through LinkedIn. Uh, also, sometimes I'll learn intel about specific companies and I'll reach out to them directly. I don't always have the time to do it, but I sure try whenever I can. Uh, I also just get so many random emails from I mean, some of the biggest companies in the world. And I'm very grateful that they trust me because in a lot of cases, we don't have an NDA. But asking everything from, you know, what kind of whatever provider, you know, fraud provider, verification provider, chargeback provider, whatever it is. Uh, do you recommend? And a lot of times those recommendations, I said, actually, no, I should say all of them are based off of other merchant feedback. So um, I very rarely input my own opinion. There are a couple of times I do, um, but it's gener- generally because of uh, things that merchant users have told me. Um, so that happens a lot as well as um, just super random things like what... Um, you know, what's the average chargeback rate for this? Or what do we do about this? Or we're starting a new business model. What should we be thinking about? Those types of things I also do just because I, I love doing them. And I, I know how hard it is to be a merchant on the front lines and, and need to phone a friend sometimes or a lifeline. So uh, that's and also it keeps me connected to you guys and, um, you know, you guys as merchants and other people in the industry. So that's why I love to do it. And then I also have my you know, current business. I'm currently transitioning the business model a little bit. Um, COVID definitely taught me a few things. I was really relying on word of mouth. I wasn't really doing a lot of proactive either marketing or sales or, or anything. And so I am just learning to be a little different. On that note, um, I wasn't sure if I was going to announce this this week. Um, I don't have as many details as I will next week. but. Uh, I have had it on my heart to create a female fraud fighter group uh, for women. Uh, I've just noticed so much. I mean, this is, I don't know, guys, bear with me or, you know, skip through the next couple of minutes. But I I hope you bear with me. Being a woman in a male-dominated industry isn't easy. And I believe I was one of the first. Um, You know, I think I've said this multiple times. I don't know if it's on this podcast or another one that, my very first frog conference I attended in 2009, there were about 250 attendees. And of all the women that I remember being there, we've all kind of had, I've asked them this question, like who else was there? And between all of us, we can only count 16 other women that were there. So I'm going to say generously, there was probably 25, but that's like less than 10% of the entire audience. So that's, you know, I started, I'm so excited that now when you, well, when we used to go to conferences, it's about 30 to 40% females. And here's the thing. It's not just about like women power and all that. I mean, representation matters, but I think even more profoundly than that, it's more about different perspectives are so important in an emerging industry, especially one like fraud. And we all have different uh, perspectives based on so many factors, but gender is one of them, as is race and culture and um, socioeconomic status. You know, when you were growing up, just all those perspectives really help a lot. It's similar to when, uh, you know, I worked for a travel company for a while and they would hire people who were locally from other countries to look at those transactions because different consumers shop differently in different regions. It's the same kind of thing. I mean, just having, 
especially on the strategy side, having different perspectives is just key to innovation and staying on top of things. But I've also noticed over the years, mostly with myself, that I get in my own way all the time. I, my imposter syndrome is real. Um, maybe it doesn't seem like it, but I'm just pretty good at daring myself to take more risks. That doesn't mean that I think that I am deserving of the awards or uh, the fan mail or any of that stuff. Um, I'm just a fraud nerd like anyone else, but, uh, I definitely have gotten in my own way. And I've noticed over the years when I have reached out to people to speak at the conferences I've organized, and this is a generalization. So I hope, you know, you forgive me with this, but a lot of men don't second guess themselves. They, sometimes they don't even ask what topic I'd like them to talk about. They're just like, yep, absolutely. I feel qualified to do that. And when I reach out to them, they are qualified. I I'm selective. So, you know, they have every reason to say that. I really wish that when I reached out to women, it was the same way. They were, that they were confident in what they knew and they knew that they would deliver a great presentation or a great, you know, panelist or whatever it is. But a lot of times, if they haven't spoken before, especially, I need to really convince them, you know, why that they are qualified. And, you know, Something I learned kind of this huge aha moment I had a couple of years ago is I think a lot of us as women, and it has to do with our upbringing and, you know, messaging and I mean, so many factors, conditioning and all that stuff. So this is not going down like a women's lib course or anything like that. This is just from my own experience. But I think as a child, I was taught to be small and, you know, not to take up a lot of space and not to shine and to be humble. And I think there is a way to be humble and still be proud of your accomplishments. And um, so here was my aha moment was that no one's going to come and qualify me for anything. No one, I think I was secretly waiting for someone to say, you are now qualified to charge for keynote speeches at conferences. You are now qualified to offer group training or whatever it is. And I realized through um, a group I was in, a group mentorship program that I was in last year that, or maybe two years ago now, that no one comes around and qualifies you like little bunny foo-foo or, you know, a fairy godmother or anything. You have to qualify yourself. And that takes a lot of confidence. And I think a lot of us um, females in tech don't have as much confidence as we want to, or as we should, certainly as we should, because a lot of us have had to work twice as hard as you know, our, some of our counterparts over the years and have had to, you know, work uphill sometimes. I mean, gosh, there was one time I cried at work and I mean, oh, it was so embarrassing, but I cry when I'm angry and I was really upset and I had every reason to be. And that labeled me different, right? So like, there's just, there's different things like that. So, and then, but that also made me second guess myself and think, well, gosh, I'm not qualified to be a leader. I cried. Um, so here's where I'm going with this little tangent. I am kicking off on December 1st, a, um, female or or a group coaching or group mentorship, however you want to call it group. Um, and I am titling it fearless female fraud fighters or F4 for short. And it's going to be a monthly, uh, membership, uh, but month to month. So, you know, if after the first month you're like, but I don't think you will. Um, there are just so many challenges and books and things that have really helped me over the last couple of years, you know, challenge myself to get out of my comfort zone and to know that I'm qualified and then not second guess myself as much still happening. I still have a coach, you know, I mean, it's it's an ongoing thing, but 
there's just a lot of, and I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of you women that are in a similar boat as I was or as I am. And I also just think that like right now with all of us working from home, we're all craving connection like really badly. So this group is going to be uh monthly. We're going to have weekly calls, um, some challenges to kind of get yourself out of your comfort zone, some um, activities to help you determine what you're passionate about. Um, if you don't already feel like you really know that. And I mean, within fraud or within payments within, you know, our industry, but like there's analytics, there's strategy, there's operations, there's people leadership, there's product management. Like there it's, there's a lot of offshoots of fraud. So, um, I'm just really excited about this. There's several women that are already, um, going to be enrolled. I'm still working on getting the enrollment in place and everything else, but um, this is something I've wanted to do for a long time. And quite frankly, I've gotten in my own way too many times. So I'm just making it happen. Uh, and I just think there's something big about community. And uh, on that note, I am also working on having a similar group uh, training program starting in January 1st for people who just really feel like you need some formal fraud or chargeback training. I'm still kind of wrapping my head around what what topics we're going to dive into first. So if there are specific ones, I'm kind of feeling like chargeback analysis and reduction and the best practices of representment would probably be the best for Q1. Um, just because a lot of companies, any company that has holiday offerings are generally speaking, January is a pretty big month for chargebacks. Um, so I used to call it the holiday hangover. I don't know. Someone else probably has a better name, but, um, well, chargebacks are a symptom of a holiday hangover. I think there are a lot of other symptoms too, uh, when you're in e-commerce, but, um, yeah, so I'm kind of, I'm working on that to determine, you know, but if, um, if you have interest in that, or if you, there's something specific you've kind of been hoping for, um, I'd love to hear it. So please reach out to me on LinkedIn or um, email. So uh, just, you know, throwing that out there, but wanted to, you know, I really want in these offerings that I'm providing you guys and to the industry in a more formal way than my informal, you know, random little notes on LinkedIn and and the podcast. Um, I, I really have this vision to have these smaller groups, you know, less than 20 people who are really in it and for it to be affordable for merchants. Um, so anyway, that's kind of where I'm headed. Uh, in addition to, I've, uh, made some really awesome strategic partnerships recently. Um, I don't know if strategic partnerships, the right reason, but, or the right thing, but I am in a position where I'm able to be pretty, uh, discerning as to what vendors I work with. Um, because I will always be a merchant at heart. I will always, uh, want to ensure merchant trust and, um, that, but there are a couple of newer startups that I am really excited about. And so, um, there's two that I'm you know, going to be starting to advise on, um, strategies around, um, you know, communicating with merchants and all of that stuff. And so, um, that's kind of more the structure of my business now, but Anyway, that was kind of a long tangent, but I I did want to give you guys a little bit of just an insight into what uh, I've been up to. Um, I also just, I get to have meetings with some of the coolest people in the world. Uh, That's really when 
it's early morning and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have a call with someone in Israel or someone in, you know, the UK or someone in Germany or whatever. So I have to wake up early because I'm on the Pacific coast and we are, you know, three hours behind Eastern standard and nine hours behind Israel and, you know, eight hours behind, uh, Europe. So anyway, um, whenever I do that, I kind of think, no, 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 I'm not complaining about this. I am so freaking lucky to work with great people, with smart people to learn every day, to be able to help where I can. Um, you know, the merchant collaboration calls I started at the beginning of COVID are still going strong and have really, um, been helpful to a lot of people. So those are the things that light me up and that keep me going. But yeah, sometimes it's a little challenging to go from thinking about one type of fraud to another type of fraud to a merchant to a vendor, from a proposal to a project, from the podcast to, you know, from conference calls all day to the podcast. Like, but you know what? I'm not, I don't want it to seem like I'm complaining because I have kind of chosen my own adventure and created this little universe for myself. And I know how really lucky I am. So, um, but you know, it's a little crazy. And I know that those of you that are on the front lines and on the merchant side, it's been really crazy for you guys lately too. In fact, um, this was kind of some of the, some of the things I thought I'd talk about at first today was more around, uh, the holidays a little bit more, but in a different way than I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Um, there's been some really interesting studies and surveys released in the last couple of, uh, weeks. I recently started to um, subscribe to Digital Commerce 360, and they just have a lot of information about e-commerce, including the fact that they are expecting online sales to surge 43% for 2020 holiday season over 2019. And I know that for people in sales and marketing and e-commerce, this is super exciting for those of us in fraud prevention or for people in customer support or the warehouse. It's a bit daunting, especially with budgets being lower and people working from home. And I know for people managers, you guys, especially for retailers, you really do a good job overall of lifting your people up and supporting them over the holiday season and having games and having extra snacks and all those things. And you can't really do that as much this year. So I would urge you to consider and think outside the box how you can still support your team virtually. I had a LinkedIn thread a month or two ago about that. And I do plan to write an article about that soon because there are some really good ideas in there. But everything from, you know, calling a team meeting and having a surprise, a magician, you know, join the Zoom call as a surprise. Uh, that's what one internet retailer did. Uh, this summer. And that was super fun for their team. Um, others have done like pajama day or bring your dog to zoom day or, um, you know, sending little care packages to your team or, um, you know, just little notes telling them that you appreciate it. That means the world. I mean, I, I certainly love it when I have, you know, those of you that listen to the podcast, reach out and say, Hey, this is really helpful. Or, you know, I didn't know. The biggest thing I've heard about is like a lot of people didn't know what triangulation was. So sometimes like, I don't know what you don't know. And so I was kind of surprised, but I'm really glad I was able to help with that. And I'm actually going to talk about it a tiny bit more this episode, I think. Um, but yeah, so there's, you know, it's going to be crazy. There's going to be more new online customers than ever before. And 
a lot of them are going to be legitimate. But as we know, fraudsters also like, you know, they look like new customers and like to blend in. So that's going to be a little more challenging. And I think the biggest challenge I see on that front is just customer, the risk of customer insult. And that's really going to depend on your fraud provider and what rules or what models you have set up and how it works. I mean, that's something that I continually comes up on conversations with merchants, especially those in omni-channel retail, because especially as they're having to continue to pay real estate or rentals for their, you know, in-person stores, they're hoping to make up the losses of in-person retail due to COVID by online. So there's just a lot of pressure there, but they also don't have as many resources as they usually would. So that's a big challenge. Every customer insult really hurts them, not only their current bottom line, but I think I've said this before, but um, I once heard a sales rep for, I can't remember what frog company at a conference. This is probably like seven, six or seven years ago. And they said, Whenever you decline a transaction due to fraud that wasn't actually fraud, you are essentially referring your customer to your competitor for life. And um, that sounds extreme, but it is. So more than ever, merchants are really looking for the precision, more precision than a hammer, you know, more of a scalpel than a hammer approach. Um, And really trying to thin out those margins as far as the gray area. Um, And depending on your company and your business model, there are some great options out there. But right now for the holiday season, it's probably a little too late. But if you are noticing that you have um, high decline rates or you're worried about false positives, you certainly can add an extra layer of verification. I did that for a client last year for the holiday season and it worked out very, very well. They reduced their insult rate by a lot. I think it was over 50%, but they also weren't doing a lot at the beginning. So I want to, you know, context I think is important. Um, And yeah, I did just hear a merchant uh, today actually uh, complain that when they look at case studies from fraud providers, sometimes it's a challenge because it'll say like, we reduced, you know, this company reduced their fraud by 85% or 70%. When they implemented our solution, well, chances are they didn't have any solution at all. And those are the kinds of things that merchants who understand fraud expect you to convey. Um, or they were using a this kind of model or this kind of company, um, putting them in a category. You don't need to call out your competitors, but, you know, how you were able to shave those extra, um, you know, reducing chargebacks while also increasing your sales and acceptance rate. Um, that's just super important to everyone. That's just a fun little tidbit for vendors out there that are uh, working on case studies. And I, I think it's very, it speaks to how detailed, um, and just how much of a BS detector a lot of fraud fighters have. Um, so I don't envy everyone on the vendor side for that reason, but, um, a lot of the tricks or the things in sales or marketing that work for other industries just aren't going to work, um, in this industry because, (laughs) You know, if you're able to determine the risk of a transaction with just a few data points um, on the other side of a computer, you can probably detect BS pretty quickly. So anyway, I'm kind of feel like I'm all over the place. So I hope you are able to follow along today. Um, but I, you know, so there are going to be those new online customers than ever before. So really paying attention to is this risky or are they just new and maybe they've never shopped on the internet before. So it's going to look like the email address is new or maybe they've just never shopped with you because 
they would usually go and get your product from a store for their grandchild or their niece or their nephew, but now they need to order it online and they've just never purchased from you. So keep that in mind this year more than ever before, especially with 43% increase in sales for the holiday season. That's a lot because you guys were already slammed and busy. Um, professional refunders are advertising discounts. I have said this before. I will continue to say it. If you're a retailer with physical goods and you have a decent brand or you sell good brand name items, you are being targeted by professional refunders. And that really to me is refund fraud. You're not going to have a charge back for it, but they are going to game your system and get a refund on behalf of their customer who was actually your customer first. But what ends up happening is you shipped the product, you've now refunded the money, and so the customer has the item for essentially free, but the refunder gets a small percentage of it. Um, Currently, the rates are 7 to 20%, depending on the order value and the risk to the the refunder. Some companies are harder to scam than others, so they'll increase their rate, or maybe there's a refunder that specializes in in one or two companies that no other refunders really know how to manipulate their refunding system or, you know, whatever it is. And so um, it's not always with customer service and it's not always with, uh, well, it's almost always with customer service in some way, but it's not all, it's honestly maybe only 50% of the time are they claiming the item didn't arrive. Uh, Otherwise they're, you know, returning empty boxes or boxes with other items in it that they didn't order or things or messing manipulating with the shipping label so it appears that the item was shipped back to your warehouse but really it wasn't it was shipped across town or it was shipped somewhere else um so there's different different ways of doing it but it's really important that and then they'll call customer service and say well look can't you see on the tracking i returned the item it's on my fault that your warehouse is behind on returns Um, so that's definitely something that's, um, a concern to me. And I have to say, like, I've been pretty surprised at the number of retailers who just aren't taking this as seriously as I think they need to. They're not, I mean, I can show them every screenshot in the world from these dark web communities and they just don't care. It's not in their purview. And that's sad to me, but I also understand we are all overworked. Um, especially this year, especially, and especially for parents who are also trying to, you know, keep their kids from running around crazy or, you know, burning down the house or zoom school or whatever it is. It's just, it's a lot this year. So, um, but I've just been surprised that not as many people have been as, as worried about it as I was, but, um, unfortunately that probably means there's going to have to be an expensive lesson before. There's a lot of action being taken. I mean, uh, Chase Park and I are working with a, you know, small handful of, of merchants on this, but I kind of anticipated a couple of months ago that I would be transitioning my business to all refund fraud uh, support. And that's just not the case, but that's okay. Um, you know, also organized. This is something I learned recently. Um, uh, I, I kind of heard things from merchants that made me think that maybe this was becoming an issue again or a bigger issue than it was. But uh, I've gotten confirmation from uh, one of my newer clients that this is happening. And actually, there's going to be a really cool white paper coming out soon that'll be co-branded with my company, Chargelytics, as well as one of my clients. And I'm really excited to be able to share the results uh, on the podcast 
in the coming weeks, as well as I will have a link to, you know, I believe I'll have, be able to have a link uh, to that white paper on the podcast. I still need to work all that out. Um, but organized crime over in this primarily, this primarily is for us merchants, but, um, there's a lot of organized crime in the, uh, Eastern European areas, Russia, Ukraine, Moldova, et cetera, uh, that have really quickly increased their network of reshipping mules. Um, some are unwitting, others are complicit. Um, but there's two big ways how they are recruiting these people in the U S and that is, uh, romance scams. It it just breaks my heart, but of course there are so many people that are looking for a companion, um, right now, especially as everyone's kind of locked up in their homes for the pandemic. I mean, the majority of people across the world have been in varying levels of lockdown, uh, depending on where they live since March. So, you know, that really is a challenge for dating. And so unfortunately fraudsters and scammers and social engineers are taking advantage of that, uh, and saying, Hey, you know, I just can't get packages shipped here to me, you know, where I live, uh, in my country. Can you, you know, can I use your address and then just have, uh, you send those, you know, re like take them out of the box and put them in a different box and then send them to me. Uh, I'll pay you for it. Or sometimes they won't pay them for it because, you know, the victim is so crazy about uh, the person that they're talking to online on these dating sites that they aren't thinking they're just they're doing a favor for someone they care about. Uh, the other way is through work from home scams, uh, you know, being offered 20 to 30 dollars per box that you reship. Well, you know, chances are you won't be getting that money um, or you will, but then at a certain point, your address gets burned, so to speak. So they have to move on to the next. And they have found ways to do this at scale. It is not as manually intensive as it used to be. It's like this complete operation. I've been able to see a lot of the intel on this directly from these uh, criminal organizations. And it is fascinating. Uh, so with all that, I, I think it's something to be aware of for retailers with physical goods that, you know, an address is, um, and this is going to be so hard because in a lot of cases, you're not going to have bills shipped to the same or, or there'll be no AVS match. So that's going to look a little bit suspicious, but also there's a lot of transactions this time of year that, uh, the billing address is different than the shipping address. So how do you know? Um, so that, you know, those kinds of things I think are just important to keep in mind. I think it's really, it's going to be a balancing act this year, guys. I'm overwhelmed on your behalf, (laughs) but, uh, you know, we are going to get through it. We've gotten through a lot worse. We've gotten through COVID this year. We'll get through the holiday season and it will be magical. Um, it'll be magical to get through it. I hope the holiday season is also magical, but you know, there's a lot of traditions that can't be done this year. So we'll see. Um, another survey that came out, uh, actually the day that I'm recording this, um, came from Ravelin and they are a fraud provider, um, that offers machine learning and, uh, they did a really good survey. It kind of reminded me a lot of the 2018 fraud operations survey. I had the privilege of contributing questions and, uh, 
you know, really kind of some insight and what merchants really wanted to know uh, into that survey because it was through CMP and they, you know, asked for my feedback on that. Um, A lot of the questions were similar, which I think is great because these are answers to questions that I think will help some merchants do their jobs better. To understand where your peers are in things is really important. And this survey in particular broke it down by vertical. So they're providing different statistics for travel and ticketing than they are for retail and physical goods, which is so important because when there are surveys that bucket them all into one, it can be hard um, on the vertical. So, I mean, obviously there are always going to be sub verticals. I mean, retailers, you know, would love to know what other, you know, if they sell shoes, they want to know what other shoe provider or shoe providers, sorry, (laughs) I am tired today. Shoe merchants are, you know, what they're uh KPIs are and you know if they are um clothing or electronics they want to know those verticals but you know this is still narrow enough so some of the highlights um was the types of fraud that have increased uh based on covid and this is pretty it doesn't surprise me it's just i think it's really important and i would urge you to use these talking points when you're talking to your leadership These are the kinds of things that will help you convey the importance of your team as well as uh, that you need more resources. I mean, chances are if you've got this high of fraud increasing, you need different resources or or it's a it's a good story of, hey, remember when we did that RFI and we implemented those new fraud tools last year or three years ago? Wow, well, we haven't seen the same numbers that other merchants have in these areas. So. I just think whatever you can use best practice information or um, really just industry statistics, it's fairly rare to get really good results on, and good data on those. So when you can, I think you should use them in that way. Um, so here's some here are some stats. Refund abuse is up by 51%. Um, I would say I to me, there's a difference between refund fraud and refund abuse. I think that this specific or this particular uh, percentage is encompassing both. Uh, promo abuse, so promotional code abuse is up 49% in the last year, especially during COVID. ATO is up 48%. I feel like I should have had a guest on here and have them like guess over under or something like that, uh, or prices right rules. Uh, maybe next time. Friendly fraud is up 41%. And online payment fraud, so just kind of your general carding and and credit card fraud um, is up 39%. Uh, So within the ATO, uh, 48% of the attackers change the phone number after successfully compromising the account. And this is consistent with what I hear with a lot of merchants. A lot of times they'll see a login. They'll see maybe a phone number change or, you know, password change and then no activity for a while. And then uh, the payment fraud will happen down the road. And usually that's because the person who's selling the data wants to make sure that the uh, username and password that they obtained is accurate for that company. And then they might want to lock out or, yeah, that merchant account. And then they might want to lock out the uh, legitimate cardholder or user really, uh, so that they don't have access to their account. And then a week or two later, the items are, you know, so assuming that a lot of customers don't log into those accounts very often, uh, for some retailers, that's the case. I mean, quite honestly, I probably, I couldn't tell you how many companies have, I have a username and password with, I mean, my password manager knows, but 
I still am not entirely convinced that I don't have companies like out there from 10 or 15 years ago that I use some simple password that I just, I've never logged into again, but um, so I'm sure everyone's the same way, but it's, you know, important to know that that's kind of their MO. So when you're looking at it and you're like, oh, it's just benign. They, you know, logged in with a different device, but all they did was change the password or change the phone number. They didn't make a purchase. Uh, if you have an account monitoring system, I would say pay attention to that because there are a lot of merchants who are experiencing ATOs that will see that in the log history, but they didn't catch it until there was high dollar payment card abuse happening. So keep that in mind. Also, I'm flipping over my notes here. Um, the Center for Ident- or the Identity Theft Resource Council. Um, they have really good information for consumers and something I just wanted to mention to everyone because, you know, the majority of people that listen to this podcast are in some realm of fraud fighting on the merchant side, the bank side, or um, service providers that enable fraud fighting. But there are, you know, but we're also all consumers and there are some consumers that also listen. And so, I kind of wanted to also highlight some of the things that I expect consumers to be facing as far as fraud. This is not going to be all encompassing by any means, but this is something that like if your family members say, well, what should I be watching out for? Or if a family member calls you and says, oh my gosh, I found such a good deal on whatever the it game is this year for merch or for uh, kids. I was going to say, I was going to use Tickle Me Elmo as, you know, a... (laughs) example, but I think that would definitely doubt date me <laughs> as far as, you know, I'm getting older, but, um, you know, whatever that it toy is or electronic, obviously there are two new gaming consoles coming out this year, uh, that those are going to be highly desired at any kind of a discount, which means the fraudsters are going to want to buy them with stolen cards. Anyone that sells those should be very well aware of that. And uh, be, you know, weighting those transactions a little bit more than they do non-riskier products. But um, there's just, there's gonna be, you know, a lot of, a lot of opportunities for consumers to either be scammed or to enable fraudsters. And as I said, this is not an exhaustive list, but I wanted to be able to provide, you know, some based on what I'm anticipating to be fairly common and what's been popular in the past. I mean, back when I was at the trade association, one of my favorite things that I got to do every holiday season was create like a top 10 list for the FBI uh, to be able to share on their website with consumers about what the scams of the holiday season were. And, uh, you know, that's not something in my current role that I do, but I just used to love to do that. So I kind of wrote a similar list. Uh, there's more, there's just a total increase in social media scams. And this is something that was reported by the identity theft resource council recently, uh, romance scams, as I talked about, they're just, they're killing me. They're breaking my heart. And I've heard some really rough stories recently about, about romance scams from some victims and it's tough. Uh, fake ads. This is something that's huge, especially in the social media, uh, sites that have a lot of pictures and a lot of picture ads. Um, there, there isn't a ton of due diligence on ads. They're not, they're not checking that these companies are ethical or, 
you know, valid or that they're really going to send you what you ordered. And I think a lot of people have had that experience where they order something off of a Facebook ad and, you know, it's five sizes too small or it's completely shaped wonky or it's counterfeit or whatever it is. So my biggest tip with, you know, social media ads, because I think there's, I've learned about some great products through social media ads, but I will not click on the links. Uh, instead I will go out to my search bar and I will, or my search engine, and I will search for that company. Uh, because I, there are a lot of people who will misrepresent companies and have ads, you know, for one established company, but then the website goes somewhere else. Um, or it's a triangulation website. And as I talked about on a previous episode, um, triangulation happens a lot and it happens with more than just physical goods. Actually, the first time I learned about it was back in 2012 from the ticketing and travel uh, industry. So event ticketing, uh, theme parks, there's a lot of that happening where, um, Oh, with triangulation where they'll purchase uh, park passes on a stolen card and then uh, sell it to uh, people just wanting to go to the park uh, for a discount for theme parks. Uh, there's also um, there's even like a rental or oh, there was I don't think it's happening now, but like there are these people in like parking lots of shopping centers outside of Anaheim and Orlando that offered a rental service for I just did air quotes, but you can't see me. Uh, the renting, renting out five day park hopper passes. And so you would only have to pay for one day and then they, you know, rent out the other days for other family members. That's fraud. That's completely fraud. Chances are they bought those tickets on stolen credit cards. And if the theme park caught those, you would have a very disappointed family waiting at the gate, uh, who thought that they were going to one of the best theme parks in the world. And now they can't because mom and dad wanted a discount. And, it's, you know, it's just a whole thing. It's And it's not anyone's fault for wanting a discount. We all want discounts. And I'm not in any way saying don't pay on a discount. I love a sale like anyone. But what I am saying is be careful who you're ordering from. I think it's very important to know that you're ordering from trusted retailers and, and sites. Um, so that's what I'm saying. So don't click the links within social media instead go out to their site. Also, a lot of times when you put these company names in the search engine, you're also going to find reviews or you're going, sometimes I'll put in their name and the word scam and see what pops up. Um, just if I'm a little bit critical, like at one point, my daughter really wanted a new kind of animal bed for my dog or dog bed really. Um, and it was from like a company in China and I was super skeptical, but I was like, well, maybe, huh? Um, I still, you know, she saw the ad on social media. I went out to their site. I looked up to make sure it was legitimate. I knew the orders were um, shipping from China, but, um, you know, it was a special dog bed. It took him three months. Well, it took like a month to receive it. And then it took him like three months to even want anything to do with it. And I was going to take it to, you know, donate somewhere, but I just hadn't gotten around to it. And now it's his absolute favorite bed. But I tell that story because like that could have gone really wrong. Um, and yeah, the chargeback, you know, process is in place for consumers, but you don't want to have to rely on that because there's a lot of other factors that go into whether you as a consumer would win the chargeback or not. So anyway, that's super important. Triangulation can happen in a few different ways. In some ways, they're scraping the website to be able to get the same pictures that the merchant has for their items. And then they'll essentially, you know, like I explained on the previous episode, 
when you inquire, when you as the consumer inquire about the coffee makers they have or the, you know, consoles they have or the cell phones they have or whatever, um, and you make a purchase, then they will make a purchase with the legitimate merchant for that item to ship to your house. Uh, there are other ways where they'll, um, you know, make a purchase, they'll repurchase the items and then sell it. But that's a little less like triangulation and more like just general fencing or, um, you know, repurposing or reselling goods. Um, so that's really important. I think, you know, it's important to, uh, be aware of one day sales. It's important to be aware of companies that you're just not super aware of or that you've never heard of before. Um, something I do when I find sites like that, or when people that I know reach out and say, Hey, is this legit? Uh, chance, I should say 95% of the time when people in my life have sent me a link and asked if it's legit, it's not. So people just need to listen to their gut. Uh, there was one time where it was, but like, eh, maybe two, but that was, I still was like proceed with caution. Um, so one day sales or sites that look like professional photos from, uh, valid companies, valid retailers, but they're just slapped on another website, those kind of things. It's really good resource to look in who is domain. Uh, so it's W H O I S and then domain, uh, to determine when the domain was opened, because a lot of times it'll be less than a month or less than two months. And that's kind of your sign to go. Okay, I'm not making a purchase here because here's the other thing. Some people say, well, why does it matter if it's stolen or not? And I could talk about that for like two episodes. But when you are making purchases from fraudsters, there's no guarantee that you're going to get the item. And sometimes they want you to pay on something other than a credit card that have harder dispute uh, rules. So or sometimes they can't get a credit card processing account because of underwriting. So. There's a lot of reasons why they might just take you, tell you that you're going to be sent a, a coffee maker or whatever you're ordering, but you're not getting anything or a laptop or, you know, whatever it is like. So that's the biggest reason why I say it's important to do your due diligence. And it doesn't take that long. It just takes a couple of seconds, but you'll get in this habit of being like, oh, I was going to click that link on my social media, but now I'm going to go out to their website. Or, oh, I was, you know, I really want to make this purchase because this, you know, smartwatch is on deep, deep discount, but uh, I just want to make sure they're a legit company. Have they had their website for five years or have they had it for five days? Those kinds of things, they're not super, I don't think that they're, you know, super paranoid or anything. It's just good practices. Um, same with when people call you, right? If they want any kind of information from you, or especially if they want payment, offer to call them back. If they say they can't accept calls, they're probably a fraudster. Um, you know, looking at uh, cheaper items on third-party marketplaces, understand that new inbox and new tag are, are usually stolen, either in person or with stolen credit cards. And here's the thing. I mean... Like I said, I can talk about this for a very long time, but at a high level, these organized crime outfits that are, you know, really doing or committing fraud at scale, they're not doing it to like fund a lavish lifestyle. They're doing it to fund other illegal activity. Um, I've been told a lot of stories about 
you know, transactions that have been tied to terrorists that then go on an attack or transactions that um, look like they are intermixed with human trafficking. Um, just really, you know, or the drug trade or it. So when you're making those purchases, you're enabling that. Uh, because as you know, my former podcast partner, Brett used to say a fraudster needs three things in order to um, make money. They need to be able to get the data. They need to be able to commit the crime, uh, like, you know, using the data to purchase an item on a website with stolen credit card. And then lastly, they need to cash out and that cash out looks different depending on what item they're stealing. But um, it's really important to be aware of those three steps of process. And if you're a consumer, chances are they're going to look to you to cash out. And they know that everyone this year, more than any other year, is looking for a deal. And so I'm concerned. So I think this will be the last time I talk about the holidays because technically they are starting on November 11th with Veterans Day in the U.S. and Singles Day in China. Um I just love the idea of Singles Day, by the way, like instead of it's almost like a reverse Valentine's Day where they encourage people who are unmarried to buy gifts for themselves. I think it's quite clever. It's a made up holiday by Alibaba. And last year it was thirty eight billion dollars in 24 hours is how much they they brought in on their single day sales or singles day sale. So it's insane. And that dwarfs Black Friday and Cyber Monday, I think. Black Friday last year was around 7 million and Cyber Monday was around 9, oh, sorry, not million, billion, 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 billion. So $38 billion for Singles Day and then 7 billion on Black Friday and 9 billion on Cyber Monday. So yeah, and this really kicks it off. So, um, you know, I certainly don't want to depress anyone. And I, uh, I know I've said this on a previous episode, but I do plan on having a lot more interviews. So I hope that I can entertain you guys. And also, if there's anything that you hope that uh, we'll be discussing on the podcast soon, please drop me a line. LinkedIn's usually best. I will try to respond as well. Um, But it just really helps me because I, you know, I don't totally know this audience yet. And so sometimes I'm flying blind and I don't really know what you want to hear. So please let me know. But with that, I really hope you have a good week. I hope that you continue to listen to Fraudology Podcast as you are head down for the holiday season and that you also remember that you are not alone. Think about all the other retailers that are fighting fraud, that are having to fulfill orders while social distancing, while having to answer a bazillion phone calls on customer support. You all are in this together and and we'll make it through. So. Uh, With that, I'm going to end the episode, but I look forward to talking with you again next week. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.